Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are getting back into uh, some film reviews. We don't do a lot of these. Um, pop culture is not necessarily in our wheelhouse, although it should be. It seems to do a little bit better in terms of like uh, uh, numbers and content. But regardless, we're going to get back into that today because we're going to talk about a film that recently came out um, on Netflix called The Colony. I don't remember the exact date that it came up or that it came out. Nick might have that information, but it's only been out for maybe a week or so. Mm -hmm. And this yeah, film I think it was January 11th, I think is what I just read, if I remember right. Okay, perfect. This film caught our eye for actually um, one major reason. Um, it's one of many post-apocalyptic films, so that wasn't necessarily um, the reason. Although we do uh, plan on doing an episode soon on the prevalence of post-apocalyptic um, film, gaming, literature in the future and 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 have a discussion about what that means for actually our, our current situation um on a sociological level but that's that's for a later date that's not what this film is about the main reason that this film um caught our attention is its commentary on colonialism which is something that we've spent a lot of time on this channel talking about mostly through like more of our historical videos in the myth is america series and the colonial process there but regardless um i want to focus on the colonial aspects here Nick, anything you want to add? Oh, no, just one interesting fact is that the original title of the film was Tides, not The Colony, which I actually think is way better, but I actually couldn't find it on Wikipedia. It's on Wikipedia. It's called Tides, not The Colony. So I'm assuming Netflix changed the title when they bought it is my guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I have no doubt that that's actually what took place. And here's the thing. Um... From what we've, and we've only done very cursory research on the film since there's not actually a lot out there on it, but what, from, from what we've researched, the film itself wasn't actually supposed to be a commentary on colonization. It was a commentary on our current overuse of resources and how we treat the planet and, and war and things along those lines, um, rather than a commentary on colonization. And the one question that I kept having is, were the writers or directors aware of how the colonial mentality intersects with why we overextract resources and abuse the planet and are always in conflict. I'm not sure they ever actually like like really flesh that out and I don't and I think it's because they were only looking at it from the very base level of climate change a problem, war bad, rethink our direction, but not understanding that some of the tropes that they were using in the film, these colonial tropes are all part of that, that like kind of meta or macro ideological discourse. What do you think? Nick? No, I disagree. I think they definitely had to be aware, right? Because it's the same humans that completely destroyed the planet that then go back and function as the colonizers, right? And it's the same, same exact people. So it's, it's gotta be linked, you know? Okay, so let's kick this uh, analysis off. Uh, long story short, The Colony is uh, written and directed by Tim Felbaum. Um, the major characters that I'll be uh, talking about as we go through the synopsis and, and the analysis here are Blake, Gibson, Narvik, Tucker, Blake's father, and Paling. I'll apologize, I'm not going to include like all of the different actors' names or their credentials or things along those lines. I think, I think they were all actually okay in terms of acting, so it was fine. Yeah, I guess let's just start with that before we get into like our critique, because I just want to say from like a technical perspective, I think the film was actually really, really good. Cinematography was great. All the acting was pretty amazing. The plot is fine. Like I didn't have it, actually any complaints in any of those regards, which was really surprising for most films. Uh, so but we're not going to talk about that really here. We're more focused on, like Jared said, you know, the underlying themes. 
Yeah, I mean, the film was entertaining enough. I mean, there, I mean, I, I could critique different parts of it, but but that's not why we're here. Um, somebody more uh, with better expertise in, in filmmaking can do that. So the synopsis, I'm going to just kind of read off the synopsis real quick that, that I put together. It's more or less just a quick summary. So um, I guess I'll, I'll tell you right now, spoiler alert, the rest of this is going to spoil the film for you if you have not seen it yet. So uh, here we go. Uh, It's just another post-apocalyptic dystopian science fiction film in which humanity destroys the earth via climate change war and a pandemic, which of course is rather fitting um, uh, for what we're experiencing right now. I will argue again, I I said I wasn't going to critique like the film a lot, but I I do think there was a little bit too much exposition at the beginning. I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. um, like when films start with a bunch of text to explain what's going on. And this film did do that, but regardless, um, some humans were able to escape um, this apocalypse and uh, entered space and survived on a base called Kepler. Although there's a super important point there, right? It's not just some humans, it's the rich elite is specifically what it says, right? Yeah, it is the elite. Um, Unfortunately, what we find out is on Kepler, for some reason, um, their fertility rates are going down. They plummeted due to the conditions in which they lived. Of course, this is left rather vague. Um, So they decided to start launching missions back to Earth called the Ulysses Program. There's two references there that I think are interesting. First, the fertility rates is a nod back to um, probably a better post-apocalyptic movie called Children of Men. Oh, God, Um, probably. That movie is like night and day compared to this movie. That's like one of the greatest movies ever made. I don't know about ever made, but it was a good movie. I like that movie. It was a good movie. I mean, if you're watching or listening to this and you've never seen Children of Men and you're thinking of watching The Colony, just watch Children of Men. It's way better than this. (laughs) Uh, and then I mean, this film is really like Children of Men, Elysium, and like Waterworld or something all put together. That's exactly what it is, basically. I don't feel like I've watched Elysium. Anyway, okay. That's the same uh, exact thing. Like the wealthy elite build this spaceship, Elysium, I think is what it's called, where the name comes from. And they all leave Earth and go live there. And then Matt Damon, the poor superhero, like goes there. Love Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. All right. He's not a superhero like Superman. He's just like the hero of the film. Ubermensch. Okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) and the Ulysses program, naming it the Ulysses program actually is again, a nod back to, in this case, I would argue Greek and Roman mythology, like Odysseus and the Odyssey and this journey and this overcoming of circumstance and so on and so forth. I'm I'm pretty sure that's why they called it the Ulysses program. So there's also a little bit of a a historical slash literary nod um, by calling it the Ulysses program. I'm assuming that's what they were going after there. Anyway, long story short, this program aims specifically um, for a formerly low populated area on earth, that's now a lifeless seaside swamp in which, how do I describe it? Essentially the tide consistently rolls in and out, making it a muddy beach, like half the time and a shallow sea, the rest, but there's like no vegetation. Uh, essentially it looks like most people are eating, um, various crustaceans or, um, what are the things that stick to rocks? Um, I mean, oysters, obviously mollusks. What are mollusks what, and they're the things that stick to boats as well. I can't think of the name right now, but anyway, whatever mm-hmm. they're, they're eating various kinds of like shellfish for lack of a better, better, better term. And of course, as you might imagine, fresh water is in short supply. So, I mean, it's a tough place to live. Okay. Now the, the, the first mission that was led by um, the main character who I'll just now just start calling Blake, her father um, was originally thought to be lost. She then leads, we pick up with her leading a follow-up mission called Ulysses two and her landing on Earth essentially goes awry, and she loses her crew um, in the in the terrible landing. 
only to be found essentially um, uh, surprisingly enough by humans that have somehow survived the end of days. This also kind of reminded me a little bit of a popular, if not well acted um, television series called The 100, in which essentially a similar thing is taking place. There's a space station where survivors exist waiting for the Earth to be habitable again. And essentially they send 100, um, in this case, teenagers down to Earth to try and like see, hey, is, is Earth habitable again? It's also a punishment of sorts. But regardless, it's the same kind of thing here where they send down these missions to see if if people can come back to Earth. Any commentary on that? Nope. I think you're right. The hundred is in there, right? Children of men is in there and so forth. So, and here's where the colonial commentary can actually begin, begin to take place. I'm not going to. Oh, by the way, I do want to mention before we go into that, because we're we're never going to come back to this. The director actually, this was filmed in like the Tidelands in Germany. So this is like a real place. And the director is from Switzerland and he grew, he like grew up in the mountains and he had never been to that part of Germany. And he went there and was just like amazed that like literally, I mean, it's miles and miles and miles of just mud. And then twice a day, the tide comes in and completely covers it. And he was just like so blown away by this that he started writing the film just based on this like natural environment, which is kind of just an interesting tidbit. I wish I was that creative. Right. Same. Well, I mean, I, I'd say creative after I've just told him, well, he's clearly inspired by The 100 and The Odyssey and Children of True, <laughs> maybe, yeah. but you get the idea. Maybe okay. we could copy a handful of movies and write something out <laughs> of I definitely couldn't direct something like this. I might be able to write something like that. <laughs> maybe. So here's where the colonial commentary comes in. We're not going to do that analysis yet. We're going to break it down like scene, not scene by scene, but like by event by event. But I want to mention that like this is where where things really pick up. The humans that have survived this apocalypse that are on Earth that 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 people you know the original Ulysses program didn't even know they existed. They're they're painted initially as violent, just scra- scraping by, and of course in the air quotes uncivilized. And and the actors in this film continue to use this term civilized and uncivilized as a clear critique of the colonial mentality, or at least I assume so from the director's point of view. However. Blake does notice, even though she's going to be captured by them, that they have children, which of course is a big deal because the whole reason this program's taking place is because back back in, in Kepler or whatever they're calling it, they can't have kids anymore. Okay. They do end up capturing her, as I already mentioned, and after some exchanges and time in, for lack of, I call it a jail hole, like they basically put her in a hole and it's like with a grate on top, like she's in jail. Their camp ends up being raided by a superior um, fighting force of other humans using assault rifles. And I did think like the use of assault rifles was meant to be symbolic, like because, again, initially the first human she meets are meant to be like less advanced technologically. They have bows and spears and whatnot and seem surprised by all of the tools she has with her. And then all of a sudden these other humans show up with assault rifles. And I do think there's some commentary there, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. Anyway, there are two different... um, types of people that these more um, well-armed humans are going to take into custody. It's going to be young girls and grown men, and we'll talk about why they choose these two different groups um, later on. Blake, though, as she's watching this, ends up kind of empathetic to her initial captors due due solely because of the fact that they have children. So she, I'm not saying like it's like full-blown Stockholm syndrome here or anything along those lines, but she does kind of empathize with them, especially after she sees um, the conditions that they live in and them getting shot up by these um, these other humans that end up showing up. She ends up trying well, to- Well, she like establishes a connection with one of the children, right? That right. helps her yeah. when she's well, in the she jail hole, as you call it. she ends up trying to save them. And yeah. she herself ends up captured. 
upon captured by the uh, humans that have the assault rifles and whatnot. Upon entering the aggressor's fortified camp of ship, shipwreck, she's quickly identified and brought to leadership. Uh, I'll now introduce the second character. His name is Gibson. He is the leader of this colony, and the colony is surrounded. It's like, again, it's an encampment of basically shipwrecks on this beach. Um, she does learn as she's captured that the first mission that she shot had failed actually worked. Obviously, Gibson's from that first mission, but ended up losing communication. She, of course, is going to have the tools so that they can communicate back to the planet. And that's where, of course, that's going to push the plot forward. Um, she goes on to learn uh, about the colony and its aim. She also finds out that her father is actually alive. Um, she thought he was dead this whole time. But he was being held prisoner in the colony for apparently losing sight of the initial goals of the mission um, to the extent that he himself led a rebellion against Gibson. And that's why he's in jail. Well, there's going to be much more on that later. Unfortunately, Blake um, rather quickly sees the dehumanization process and the parasitic efforts of the whole colonial process um, as it unfolds. Um, unfortunately, in my personal opinion, if this was meant to be any sort of commentary on colonization, this part was way, way too light. There's, there was much more to explore here regarding the colonial process and mentality and its intersection with the film's critique of not taking care of the planet, not taking care of each other, etc. Um, anyway, Blake quickly takes matters into her own, own hands and frees, I, I can't think of a another term. So I use the term indigenous. She frees the indigenous humans, um, as well as her father. And needless to say, um, the film ends up kind of celebratory. She wins the final standoff with Gibson and is reunited with her father. Roll credits, not rolling credits on our episode here. That was just the summary and the synopsis. And now we're going to dig into this a little bit, um, in a little bit more depth. Anything you want to add before we do that, Nick? No, I don't think so. Like you said, the first real, like, revelation is that she sees kids among the encampment where she first gets captured and so she realized like they're clearly reproducing which the people on kepler have lost the ability to do and that that's really the first thing that pushes her plot forward like you said you know okay well i mean it's important like from a character standpoint right her main mission here is to see if the earth is habitable but she has like, you know, her B plot is to find out what happened to her father, because as far as she knows, like you said, he's dead. The mission didn't make it and so forth. But she really wants to find out. OK, so now that the synopsis slash summary is out of the way, we're going to go through, um, at least as the viewer, the events that I thought were most important um, and talk about their intersection with colonialism and perhaps their historical um, influence, I guess, influence from history, I should say. Um, anyway, you get what I'm saying. Okay, so the opening at first, like this is one of the bigger bigger tropes in these post-apocalyptic films that I continue to see, is building empathy for the colonizer. In other words, um, there's a lot of time um, spent either in dialogue or in imagery um, talking about the nobility or building, um, building, um, building up the nobility of the mission, I, I guess is what I'm trying to spit out here. Um, in this case, obviously, um, making sure that the human species uh, does not go extinct, um, going back to earth and seeing if it's livable again. Maybe we've learned our lesson from, from again, the wars and the climate change and the pandemic and, and, and what led us down this road. Essentially, that's the idea here is that somehow these colonizers, these technologically superior colonizers going, going to this place have a noble mission, which it, it, it's already kind of building in this idea 
that we are going to a take their side in all sort of like we know it's a film there's going to be drama um there's going to be problems that come up we're going to take their side um any thoughts on that nick you know i thought about this a lot I don't know. I think that you're right. Like the goal of this scene is to build empathy for like, these are the people we're supposed to be invested in right? and their mission. Huh. Yeah, exactly. But um, there are some like subtle sort of red flags, I think. Right. Like there's the scene where Blake is young. It's like a flashback and her father, they're still on Kep- Kepler. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to her about the tree and so forth. And she basically says, you know, dad, I don't want you to leave me. Like, don't go. And his response is, what does Kepler teach us? We will not think about ourselves. We do not let our emotions guide us. We do it for the many, right? And even then you're like, that's a little cringy. Like, I think you question, there's a little bit of a red flag there. Um, so I think they're planting the seed, right? But yeah, overall, the scene is to make us root for these people, right? The human race and so forth. Right. And I wasn't even, I mean, I wasn't even critiquing this film in particular. I was, I was, I was critiquing any of these like space. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Humans. Yep. Like it, it does. It builds empathy for the colonizers. It falls under the hegemonic dominant discourse of tr- progress and growth and go mm-hmm. take what's not yours. And like, I mean, it, it's so cliche at this point and it makes me cringe every time I watch it. And, and but again, that's the whole point of this film, right? Is like, that the big reveal is that it's these people we've been rooting for all along they're revealed as the colonizer and that's supposed to be this like seismic shift for us, right? Like, Oh my God, we have been rooting for them and they're, they're the baddies, you know, their mission is noble. It's the difficulty of the project. They're brave. They're going on. Just like I said, they're brave for taking this mission back to earth from Kepler, wherever that is. It's not very clear. It's another planet somewhere in another star system, but it doesn't matter. They're, they're brave for doing this just as, um, back in the day in the 1400s and stuff, we would have considered uh, the Pizarros or the Columbuses or the like the Gamas that they were relayed as like brave when mm-hmm. people didn't really know right. what they were doing when they went to these places. That's the connection there. So again, it already kind of builds that empathy towards the colonizer. All of this takes place under the dominant discourse of technocratic ideological hegemony. Um, what is this dominant hegemony? That's really where I wanted your comment. To, like, what is the the hegemonic um, discourse that I'm kind of alluding to here. What do you think? I mean, yeah, it's the dominance of technology, progress, you know, at all costs, uh, using technology, the development of new technology to, I mean, in this case, I would say further exploit the earth, but that's a whole other thing, not in the film, like what we're doing right right now. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, their goal here is saving the, as far as they know, the human race using technological advancements and so forth. Like, I mean, I guess that's a important note is that as far as they are concerned, they think that they are the only remaining humans. They think that the earth is completely desolate, you know. The other, the other thing that caught my eye is when they land, and this is about the technocratic, like what can we use, resource extraction, mm-hmm. um, um, exploitative practice. The other thing that I caught, up, caught on to was when they land, Right. They immediately start like analyzing the atmosphere and stuff, as you would expect Mm -hmm. in in a sci fi film. But then they also start like looking for organisms and they start testing those organisms. And it got me thinking, again, as the as the history guy here of another historical example of this, this one like pushes us a little further, I think, until what the late 1700s, 1789. I want to not 1789, 1798, 1798 with France's essentially invasion slash colonization of Egypt, in which uh, Napoleon shows up there and they're going to do a whole bunch of things, mainly cut the British off from India. But they also have their own their own exploitive um, things that they want to do to Egypt. 
But along with them, they bring um, scientists and doctors and so on and so forth, not just like colonial war warriors, which is kind of interesting, so that they can basically catalog and document everything Egypt. And it ends up being put together in a very famous colonial document called the Description de l'Egypte, which my French is terrible. So I apologize for all listeners that that didn't come out like in, in, with the proper French uh, enunciation or accent. But you get the idea. It's essentially like a compilation work, a colonial compilation work of everything Egypt. Not necessarily just so that you can catalog it and 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 have it there for um, posterity's sake, but so that you can understand how this is going to be exploitable. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%, anyway. right? It's just like the, what's the one in feudal times, the Doomsday Book, right? Oh, yeah, the, Dome, the Doomsday Book by uh, yeah. William the Conqueror, right? Like, um, as he's conquering um, Angleland or England, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, as you one. want to, if you want to efficiently as possible exploit all of the resources somewhere, right? You start right. by quantifying everything, right? Categorizing and cataloging and so forth. So the next thing that really got me thinking again at, the, at this colonial commentary was the introduction of the quote unquote savage. I hate that word for so many reasons, obviously as a story, and I have to see it over and over again, especially um, when dealing with the U.S. colonization of North America. Uh, I guess I shouldn't say just U.S. at first. It was British and French and then in Spanish, and then it becomes U.S., but you get the idea. But I think that's what the director is after, right? Like that's why they they paint them as like at first uncivilized. Um, I do think mm -hmm. they could have explored who these people were a little bit better, maybe like their social systems and what they were like. I do I do think there could have been a little bit more there so that we can at least build some empathy for the colonized. The only way we build empathy for them is through just looking at the wrongdoings of the colonizer without actually understanding who the colonized are. Uh, that's again probably a a. a, a I don't know. I mean, I think they have to intentionally for the plot, right? Keep the mystery for as long as absolutely possible. Like right. you, you are meant to view them as savages. You're meant to probably, I mean, it's the goal is to dehumanize them, right? For the time being until we get the realization that they're, that they're also humans. You know what I mean? That's what I it's know, supposed but to like be. when you look at other critiques, Dances with Wolves or Avatar or whatever, like you do at least get to spend time with the colonized, right? And at least build a little bit of a relationship there as the viewer with them. I don't think, and again- yeah, but neither know, of those, neither the goal in neither of those films is to have you sympathize with the colonizer in the beginning, right? Like, you know, straight yeah. off in Avatar, the, the white people are assholes. Right. I mean, that's the goal, you know? Fair enough. Okay, so the introduction of the indigenous is violent. That right there is a commentary to perhaps even push you further into wanting to empathize with the colonizer in this case, so that the 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 flip, the flip in the narrative later on in the film feels a little bit more jarring. So your first interaction with these um, indigenous humans is violent. Uh, Blake ends up captured. They have very primitive technology. Her modern technology actually has to save them, which again I think is a way to get the audience to empathize with their dominant. Uh, discourse, progress, good, technology, good, advanced science, good, all of those things, good, because it's- Yeah, just so the like people watching know, there's a scene where one of their people is injured yeah. and they get Blake's medical kit and she heals them with their like superior technology. She like pulls out something from their skin. It's a piece of metal or something. He has a scar on his face that's like festering. And then right. she sprays it with some spray that heals it immediately, right? Something like that. So like- yeah. Yeah. The white savior, the technology, the yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then this is where Nick already kind of talked about this. This is where one of the kids, she makes a connection with one of the kids um, in the encampment. Her name ends up being Myla. 
anyway, she makes this connection with her um, because, again, she's just like the noble colonizer and she's here to make life better for the indigenous people, whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not. I think that's part of it. But the viewer also gets to meet Myla's mother, um, a woman named Narvik, and she ends up being the only um, person in this encampment that speaks English, which is important because obviously this is going to be a way for them to make um, a connection and actually push the plot forward a little bit. This to me was in the spirit, um, and I think the director might have been going for this, I don't know, of the idea of the noble salad savage that uh, early colonizers of North America used to talk about, the ones that would learn the languages, English, Spanish, or French, of the colonizer, um, which, again, language is a big issue in terms of maintaining culture and things along those lines. So it got me thinking of Tisquantum, right? Like the the, the person that essentially saved um, Plymouth because he was able to translate between uh, Massasoit mm-hmm. and the Wampanoag and, of course, the colony itself. Uh, I think he's better known um, to English speakers as Squanto, but yeah, you get the idea. Well, and like we, it's later that. revealed that she, Narvik, used to be in like the colony, right? Like she was a guard, I think they say. So she was around them. Man. Like that's presumably how she would have learned English. I was going to so get to that later. No. I know. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, but I think that's important. And I do think there's some commentary there on the power of language and how, again, she's not there long enough for me to be too unfairly critical of her to like, but she doesn't even seek to try and learn the language of the people that have captured her. She wants, she speaks English. She wants them to speak English. And again, I'm probably being overly critical because she's not there for a very long time. But I mean, again, in all other films where there's a colonizer and different languages going on, there's always at least that one scene of the colonizer or the captor uh, captured in this case, I guess, attempting to learn the language of the people. And she, there's not even an attempt here. So I'm not sure why that is the case. I'm not sure why they made that um, creative decision. Like you said, she's there for like a matter of hours. You know what I mean? I don't know. They didn't have time for that scene. She never makes it out of the jail hole really until they get right taken over. So one of our other crew members ends up, um, he doesn't die instantly. It takes him obviously some time. He's injured in the whole process, uh, during the violent attack initially. Anyway, his name's Tucker. He's not in the film very long. Um, and, uh, and he ends up committing suicide cause he's so badly hurt in this, um, this, this pit that they're being held in this hole, this jail hole they're being held in. And his suicide of course is, um, uh, 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 he basically says he's killing himself because he's going to hold her back and compromise the integrity of the mission. And he says, for the many. Um, why do you think they they have this scene in there of Tucker killing himself for the many? I mean, for the many, right, is the Kepler motto, I guess. So he, like you said, he thinks he's going to hold the mission back because she keeps trying to like get her medical kit so she can save him and stuff. And so he kills himself in, you know, in service of the many. Yeah, the sign. I thought this was kind of like ridiculous. Like he didn't, there was no reason for him to kill himself. They were literally just sitting in a hole. Like she, you know, what's, right. <laughs> he could have at least stuck it out, but whatever. It's dramatic. It is dramatic. And it is, it speaks to, again, the dominant and overly cliche trope of I'm going to sacrifice, sacrifice myself for the better cause of my colonial discourse or my national discourse or whatever it is right this is sparta i I, you know it's that kind of thing right i also wondered when i was watching it i guess after the fact because i didn't think of it till after the fact it didn't occur to me that i wonder if there's a commentary somehow on race there because he's as far as i remember the only black man in the entire film right we and he's of course the first to die again that's that's a cliche trope I also thought of that as well because I 
I feel like, um, well, this isn't Hollywood. It's not a Hollywood film. Um, but regardless, I do feel like film has tried to get away from that cliche mm-hmm. trope where it is the person of color that is always the first to die in every film. But it it happened right away in this. So I was wondering if they did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever. Okay. Anyway, after Tucker's suicide, um, for the many, uh, we have a cut scene back to Blake's childhood where her father essentially teaches her about a tree, which they don't have on Kepler and they don't really have on, on Earth anymore either. So the tree ends up being very important um, in terms of building a, a, a critique of our trajectory regarding our preservation or conservation of the planet. Fine. He even uses the direct term that we have spoiled the earth, right? Like that's a, that's, that's a quote from the film that, and and he's trying to teach her, Hey, we don't necessarily want to do that again. So there's obviously the, clearly the nod towards um, being better stewards of the earth. Fine. But the tree itself is also quite symbolic. And I do think that was intentional, right? Especially when we talk about Norse, Norse mythology, which I think would be a little bit more influential given like um, the director and I think the actors and stuff, um, Northern European, but it's also prevalent in all other um, important mythologies of societies that were actually better stewards of the earth and lived in more circular harmony or reciprocity with the environment uh, around them. Uh, any commentary on the tree? I mean, we I, mean, I think it's pretty blatant, stuff. right? It symbolizes life and so forth. Yeah. So I think that was a little bit on the nose, but I think it kind of needed to be on the nose. So, you know, no, no, no problems there. Now, there's a couple of turning points in the film. The first one I think that, that is important is the raid of the camp. So while Blake is being held prisoner in this hole and her, 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 her colleague is now dead, um, the camp is going to be raided. The, and it's going to be raided, as I did in the synopsis, by humans with at least superior technology. They have, a full, they ha- they have assault rifles um, and they're dealing with people with like bows and, and spears and whatnot. So it's not going to go well um, for the group uh, that is holding Blake hostage. Uh, essentially, a whole bunch of people are going to be shot. And as I already mentioned in the synopsis, some are going to be captured and taken back to the colony itself, the, like the bigger colony. These people are um, young working age men and young girls. Um, the no- it seems like the non-useful were the ones being executed. The film's not clear. We just see dead bodies around. But yes, there was a bunch of like dead bodies. So they were either executed or just killed in the, re- in, in, in the, uh, in the raid. Uh, any thoughts? No, I mean, we know why they're choosing men and girls, but I think you want to save that for a second. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think here's the key, and I do give the the, the director some credit here by keeping it a mystery a little bit longer. Like, I, I have the questions here. Um, like, what, what, like, I guess what I want is before, you already know, um, it's been spoiled for you. You've watched the whole film, who these people are and what they're about. But like, when you first watched it, this is what I'm trying to elicit here. What did you think when this happened, when when this raid happened? And who do you think it was? Like, what do you think the director was after here? I mean, I think the goal clearly is to make you think that this is another set of like, whatever, savages, right? Quote unquote, that is just superior to the little encampment that captures Blake. I thought it's pretty obvious when I'm watching it, like clearly the story is going to be miserable if this isn't the first Ulysses mission people in responsible for this. You know what I mean? Like clearly I think that was the direction that we were headed. That was pretty obvious. Okay. So this, this takes place and um, Blake is able to um, not, not get taken hostage during this time because she's in the jail and, and she's ends up being in the, in the, in the jail hole with um, other young girls that end up like climbing down with her because they know they're going to be safe there and 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 a baby or two. Um, once she's able to climb out and escape, she decides she's going to try and um, help Narvik 
uh, regain her daughter who was taken in the raid, Myla. Um, they go on a little bit of a journey together. I'm going to kind of fast forward through some of that, but eventually they get to the point where they see, um, the captors and Blake essentially knocks Narvik out and decides she's going to be the hero and take over, um, uh, the hero colonizer trope. Um, I don't, I guess I didn't understand the, the, the need to, um, to knock out Narvik. I guess she thought Narvik was going to be too ir- irrational and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and shoot this flare gun at them, um, to try and be like. I don't know, not necessarily be the hero, but she wasn't thinking clearly because in this case it was her own daughter that was, that was captured. So perhaps that's why Blake knocked her out and decided to take over the rescue attempt. I I don't know. Any thoughts on that? No, yeah, I didn't really, that didn't resonate with me either. Like it seemed over the top that she, they couldn't figure it out together. She's like, Oh, I got this and just knocks her out. Like it was dumb, but yeah. So anyway, long story short, the rescue attempt led by Blake by herself, essentially uh, on the boat that's going to take these people back to the the main colony. Uh, It fails miserably and she ends up being captured. Um, She arrives at the colony, which uh, again, is the history. Although she never gets like found out. She's just about to. So she crawls in the hole with like the rest of the captors, I guess. Yeah. She pretends to be, I guess, one of the originally captured because she she can't fight back. So she just uh, pretends to be a prisoner. So I guess, I don't know, good on her. I, I, I don't know. Upon arrival at the colony, um, it had it had all the um, the makings um, of what I thought historical Jamestown would look like, except made with like boat wrecks, like this this whole like fortified position. And it did; it really got me mm-hmm. thinking about Jamestown because if we think about it again, I'm going inter- to inject a little bit of history here. When Jamestown was founded, uh, not only did they do horrific things to the uh, First Nations around them, even though they saved them, the Powhatan people saved um, the Jamestown settlers. Jamestown immediately like res- it, it, like. Um, I almost said resurrected, constructed, constructed like a fort, like it was a fort, like a, like it was a very intimidating military looking fort in contrast to like the people around them. So I think that there was like some commentary there using these shipwrecks as like this fortified position, um, which speaks again to like the colonial mentality, whereas the people living, um, already living on earth seem to live. I mean, they do have a jail cell for like, but this is, of course, we find out they only have the jail cell because they've been attacked before. Um, but they seem to be like living in more open communities, whereas the colonizer brings this, this is mine. I need to protect my shit. This is my shit. It's very like an intimidating type of way of using their space. Any thoughts on that? No, I mean, and clearly the symbolism is like the original encampment that she encounters is basically like tents, right? It's like canvas and sticks and like whatever, though they have like a ship that they get in when the water comes, but anyways, but then the ships that the colonizers have inhabited are like old warships, basically like they are looming over the, you know, when there's water's not there, they're however, about 50 feet tall or whatever, you know? Right. So she's brought into one of the boats that is serving as part of the structure, um, the fortified structure around the colony. And we're introduced to um, another main character. I mean, main-ish character. Uh, His name is Paling. Uh, We'll find out a little bit more about him later. But of course, he is the cliche guy that like inspects the captured. Like he's, you know, I mean, you can see his face. It's immediately punchable. Um, You hate this guy from the beginning and that's that's what he's meant to exude. So it was a little bit over the top with him, him, but I think necessarily so. I think the director at this point is, is trying to make it clear. We're not going to root for this guy. Anyway, he inspects the captured. I thought this was very reminiscent of all forms of like transatlantic slave trade, or even like the repartimiento system in which like these, these again, indigenous people are being inspected and then they're being like um, siphoned off to like whatever, 
purpose they're now going to serve in the colony, more or less as, as, as again, like, like slave servants, regardless, they're going to be doing these things against their will. It's at this point. So that's funny that you went to as a historian that far back because I went back only as far as the Nazis because it's the same like uh, every single Nazi movie you've ever seen in your life has that scene, right? Yeah. Where he's like work and school and, you know. Yeah. No, that was I I thought of that a little bit, too, um, especially given his haircut. But um, okay. Yeah. Blake is discovered basically immediately, like 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 in like while Paling is inspecting them, um, he walks back and forth maybe once or twice. Um, sees a more modern looking assault rifle that was picked up in the camp. And obviously that, that gets his, um, that sets off his radar. So he starts looking at each of the, um, captured a little bit more closely. And that's when he sees her necklace, which has, um, I don't know, it looks like a dog tag with a cyanide tablet in it, which is how I guess I should have said Tucker killed himself as well. She obviously has not eaten her cyanide tablet. Um, but does see this this dog tag and immediately he takes her upstairs and we're kind of like left wondering for at least a minute or two, wow, is this going to go bad or really well for her? Um, spoiler alert, it goes really well for her actually, at least initially. Um, this is the misdirection. Blake is, so maybe another turning point, I don't know. Blake is brought to the leader, um, Gibson, um, whereby they essentially catch up. And this is where Blake really does understand, as I said in the synopsis, that uh, the first Ulysses program was a success because here's Gibson. He's here. This is their colony. They've set up shop here. Um, And of course, she wants to know about her father, who was working with Gibson at the time and was also on this first mission. They talk about the colony. They talk about the successes and failures of the mission. um, And they then tour the grandness um, of this encampment. Basically, their rebuilding of civilization. So they spent all of this time in the film. You spent all of this time in like either on a like completely deserted beach of like mud um, or in a terrible, just shoddy looking encampment of the indigenous humans. And then even though this is still post-apocalyptic, it's not like they're, they're, they're living at the uh, at the Four Seasons here. Then you go to this place with like electricity and running water and all of these things. And you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to get back. We're going to get back to like civilization where I'm comfortable in my comfort zone. Um and and you do you kind of feel good like when she takes her first shower you're like holy shit yeah that that like you, you know you've been watching this film of her being dirty and dirty seawater all the time man that's got to feel amazing right like I think that's what the director was going for there any thoughts? Well, you missed a like super important part is that during this debrief she asks about her father and Gibson tells her that he died in the first mission. I guess I did miss that. I was going to get to the whole father story a little bit later, mm-hmm. but I don't don't know that I was actually going to mention that. So good good call there. Um, anyway, okay, so this whole idea of rebuilding civilization, this is clearly a critique of, of colonialism here, like essentially taking this thing, you as the Keplers thinking you are the more advanced and all of these other people are meant to serve you and it's for you to bring them up from their quote unquote unhappy state. I'm actually quoting at this point, I think I was Andrew Jackson during the, um, um, uh, the Trail of Tears stuff. Anyway, regardless, um, this idea here is most present when she goes to visit a classroom. She finds out this is where the young girls um, are being taken. They're being taken um, and modernized or civilized through an education program. And it is cute. Like they ask her questions. It doesn't look like too indoctrination-y at first, but they then end up singing her song. And the the image that came into my mind as these um, young girls um, in this classroom are singing uh, Blake a song is this is cultural ethnic cleansing, essentially. This was the rationale of all civilization missions, specifically, and this is going to probably ruffle feathers, all missionary missions. Like, so any mission that meant to, like, essentially Christianize a part of the world, whether we're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America or any of these places, that's what that's where my, my mind immediately went. 
like in their own mind, the priests um, uh, think that they are actually doing some sort of service to God or service to these people. But essentially what they're doing is they're part of the ethnic cleansing campaign as much as anyone else. What do you think? I mean, yeah, it's no mystery why they build churches and schools. You know what I mean? That's what they build. Right. Um, We also find out that the mission can be completed at this point, which is good because even though the communication um, device, uh, biometer or whatever, from the first mission was ruined, and that's why um, no one ever heard back from them, Blake's biometer or Blake's team's biometer actually is still functional. They just need to find it. It it got um, lost in the hubbub of her being captured and so on and so forth. But it does exist somewhere, either on the boat uh, being hidden among somebody, or perhaps you were left wondering maybe back at the camp that she originally was captured in. Regardless, this thing exists, and it's going to be important um, for them to be able to communicate back to Kepler that, hey, come on down. Um, which is interesting. Okay. She then ends up talking, um, after she visits the classroom with Gibson's son in quotes, it's not his actual, like, um, biological son, but it is a child that he has taken to raise as his son. We learned that very early on. We'll find out whose kid it is later. He's getting private lessons this whole time. And as a viewer, I assume this was because he is going to be groomed as some sort of future leader or something along those lines. But she learns um, as she's helping him with her, his his math homework that he has a secret friend locked up who is going by the name of Christopher Columbus. She only learns this because she finds out Gibson's son is growing a tree and she's like, man, who who else knows how to grow these cute little like tiny trees? At this point, the tree's like the size of, of, of your hand. But like, who else knows this? And she immediately... Um, realizes, hey man, maybe this is my dad. Maybe I'm being lied to because like he had me growing a tree like this. But more importantly for me, why the Columbus reference? Why do you think this man has identified himself as Christopher Columbus? I have no idea, honestly. I've thought about it from every single perspective of whether, well, so it's also not clear whether the kid is referring to him as Christopher Columbus or Gibson has told his kid that the guy's name is Christopher Columbus or if Blake's father is referring to himself as Christopher Columbus, it's not even clear in the film where the name's coming from. And then it's even less clear why the director made this decision. I don't know. It makes no sense to me. So for me, obviously, if you've watched uh, any of our, 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 our episodes, Myth is America, obviously our first one is like the myth of Christopher Columbus and, and how big a piece of shit he was um, and all of the men he, he brought with him. That, that's not a surprise. I'm not going to walk that back even a little bit. It was horrific. So we're obviously going to already be biased. The reason we feel this way is because we've read from, of course, Columbus's diaries, as well as some other primary sources I'll probably, I'll probably read from here in just a second. Um, one of the priests that was his, with him, a dude named Bartolome de las Casas. Regardless, we're pretty adamant that, that Columbus, as a representation of the colonial process, is everything that's wrong with the colonial process. Fine. Whether or not the director of the film meant this to be, like, since he's doing kind of perhaps an over-the-top criticism of colonization, is that why he chose Christopher Columbus as the name? Or did the director choose Christopher Columbus or the writer choose Christopher Columbus as the name as, like, maybe an homage to Christopher Columbus? And it's never really clear. So I understand where Nick's coming from. I just thought it was interesting that they used this name. And maybe it's all of the above. Maybe they know that Christopher Columbus is the most famous of the quote-unquote colonial um, personalities, and so it was just an easy uh, easy choice at that point. Maybe it is to um, allude to the horrific actions of Columbus, or maybe it is to celebrate them. I guess we'll never really know. It is a mystery. Um, But I did think it was an important point that they used this name specifically. 
um, as an alias for uh, essentially Blake's father. Okay. Um, and maybe even now that I say that out loud, maybe that's the symbolism. Maybe um, as some Columbus apologists allude to that Columbus was just the explorer. It was actually the conquistadors that he brought with him and the men that did all of the horrible things. And he really was a hero. And maybe that's what they're saying about Blake's dad, that Blake's dad was merely the person that brought the other colonizers here. And it's the other colonizers that do the horrific things, whatever. Maybe that's part of it as well. I don't know. Um, well, also, it's possible that this is like an intentionally messy application because this is when Blake and the viewer first start questioning the whole narrative, right? Right. Okay. Long story short, um, she eventually begins to have her gets to have her first conversation with her dad. She does a little bit of exploring, finds out that her dad is actually alive, being held down there, and is the one that is this Christopher Columbus person. Um, but in this first conversation with her dad, after the initial like euphoria of seeing him alive and so on and so forth, she doesn't get it yet. She doesn't get why he's, um, well, I mean, she gets why he's being held captive, but she doesn't get like the idea of this colonial process being problematic for a number of different reasons. In fact, she's still kind of on the side with Gibson and Gibson's rationale for keeping her dad in jail. Um, he, essentially we find out that Blake's father led a rebellion, um, uh, coincidentally with Narvik, um, against the dehumanizing colonial project. But at first, even Blake considers her father a traitor, especially after Gibson's explanation, even though he lied to her about him being dead, still considers him a traitor and is still cool with him being locked up because for the many. Um, any thoughts? I mean, I think that there's a critique of like collectivism throughout the film that's like a really, really narrow strand. But this, you know like you just said, their whole motto is like for the many, et cetera, but it's the colonizers, the people that we end up learning to hate in the film that have this collectivist mindset, right. That then becomes totalitarian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw it less as a collectivism critique and more of a nationalism critique, like for the many might be a critique on socialism or communism or collectivism or whatever, any of those other things. But I also, for me personally, and maybe this is just my own filtered lens, I saw it also as a critique on like the for the many is like, again, like dying for the Spanish crown, right? Like, like, like mm -hmm. a Columbus was, you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of thing. I saw right. it as, as kind of that. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, uh, the historical reference this made me think of as I'm, again, I'm tying in some of our, our academic work to this was the rebellion that is specifically referenced um, by Bartolome de las Casas um, in his records of what took place on the Caribbean islands. Um, during colonization. And there was a very famous rebellion led by a, in, uh, a Taino Arawak um, uh, leader named Atui. Uh, I'm not going to go through a bunch of quotes and stuff. I, I don't want to do it for this one, but it did get me thinking about that rebellion is one of the first, I think it's definitely the first documented. So I, I guess it's the first in that regard. It is definitely the first documented rebellion by the indigenous against the Spanish colonial project. So essentially against the whole initial colonization of North and South America, this is the first one. And it was led by a name by a man named Atui. So it's very famous. He ends up freeing a whole bunch of indigenous. They do end up catching him, uh, unfortunately. And he ends up um, crucified on a cross and burned alive. There's the very famous quote, essentially a different priest, not De Las Casas. I forget the other priest's name. Maybe he's not even named in, in, in the records. But he basically says, like before Atui is, is killed, um, uh, essentially, do you want to be saved? Do you know what it means to be a Christian and so on and so forth? And essentially, again, I'm not quoting directly. This is basically from memory. Essentially, Atui says, hey, man, 
he doesn't say hey man he doesn't say basically ask the priest <laughs> hey <laughs> hey brother no um like okay so like if i become christian i go to heaven essentially and the priest is like yeah uh, good Christians go to heaven. And of course, because of the way that the Christians have treated the indigenous people, he basically says, like he spits in the priest's face and says, then just send me to hell. Um, so again, it got me kind of thinking of that whole that whole encounter and that rebellion, that first important rebellion um, against colonization. Even though it didn't, mm-hmm. didn't necessarily like work, um, it does speak to the agency building in indigenous populations. Um, so anyway, okay. Moving forward, eventually uh, Blake has dinner with Gibson, the leader, and um, and Gibson's um, adopted family, which is basically uh, a son and a wife. And it is at this dinner that um, cracks begin to be even more prevalent in Gibson's story and the colonial mission that they're on. The wife uh, basically describes how she came to meet Gibson and how he saved her and and saved her son by cutting out her her son or something along those lines. I forget the exact story, but the Mm -hmm. whole story is kind of very like Stockholm syndrome-y, if you get what I mean. And it made me think, again, of another historical reference, like the Pocahontas story. This this woman who we've kind of painted as like having this relationship, we we now know, of course, she didn't have like a romantic relationship with John Smith and, and barely meant to save his life. It was all whole process of um, essentially accepting like the Jamestown people as part of the Powhatan people. Uh, Smith's life was never in danger, but it did get me thinking about how, um, especially with um, um, women in these colonial stories, how we do get this kind of like Stockholm syndrome kind of um, relationship relayed to us. Um, any thoughts on that? No, I think that you nailed it. I don't know what else there is to add. I mean, we later learn why, all of this has happened, but yeah, in the moment, in the moment we think that, you know, what's his face, Gibson saved her life and her son's life and has like adopted them as his family, right? But yeah. the scene reveals that like, it's a little cringy and something might be deeper going on here. Right, and and for those that don't know, the, the Pocahontas didn't have a romantic relationship with John Smith and what romantic relationship he had with an Englishman, John Rolfe, a tobacco um, plantation owner, um, was at least initially non-consensual. Pocahontas was enslaved and then sold to, to John Rolfe um, and then sent back to England. So real quickly, like, yes, Disney lied. No, no surprise there. So essentially, and we see the same kind of relationship being alluded to here, um, that she is with this guy, but kind of not, into being with this guy. Uh, it's more or less against her will. Um, she lies about her relationship with Gibson, um, again, using like the manly white savior trope where essentially like, yeah, he saved her life and and, and, she, and, and, and he was there um, to save less fortunate indigenous women, which is, is, is kind of interesting. Okay, so it's at this point that I kind of want to make the connection to the colonial process, um, historically speaking, um, and I want to read a little bit from uh, a guy named De Las Casas that I've been talking about. Again, we have a whole known uh, or a whole known a whole episode on De Las Casas and his findings regarding the Columbus mission. But I think it's kind of interesting to look at it um, from the historical lens. So I just want to read a description about the colonial process and what we're seeing and the correlations perhaps being made in this film. So now I'm going to read um, from De Las Casas and the actual colonization of the Caribbean. And I quote, 
It should be kept in mind that there, the colonizers, insatiable greed and ambition, the greatest ever seen in the world is the cause of their villainy. And also those lands are so rich and felicious, the natives speak so meek and patient, so easy to subject that our Spaniards have no more consideration for them than beasts. And I say this from my own knowledge of the acts I witnessed. I'm going to stop there for just a second because he's basically saying like, okay, after the initial colonization, the Spaniards are going to start enslaving these indigenous people to put them to work in mines and in fields and so on and so forth to basically try and get silver and gold and so on and so forth. <clears throat> um, it's not that different in the film, The Colony. In The Colony, we now find out officially over, over the next couple of scenes, essentially why they are capturing these indigenous humans, these indigenous earthlings, for lack of a better term. The young girls are being captured to essentially um, help repopulate um, the planet um, with with little Keplers. So the idea is that more Keplers are going to come down from space eventually if they can get this this um, this communication device working. They're going to send them down and they're going to procreate with these young girls. Now, the idea is it's going to take so long um, for the Keplers to get down there that by the time these young girls, uh, by the time they arrive, the young girls are no longer like like 11 or 12. They're, they're whatever, 20 or something like that, 21. But that's the well, idea. And the other important side of that is that by the time they get there, all of, because Blake's fertility is restored, let's say, when she right. gets to Earth. But they point out that all of the women that are on Kepler, by the time they make the trip, they will all be too old to reproduce. So they are, as I say, they're useless. But in this case, like as far as they're concerned, they're useless in a reproductive capacity. So in this case, the resource isn't gold or silver or eventually tobacco and sugar, like in the real colonial process. In this case, the main resource is is the reproductive rights of, of the earth women. Like that's essentially the primary resource that they're mm -hmm. seeking to exploit. And they're willing to do any number of different things to make sure they exploit it. In terms of the young men, <clears throat> I actually also promised um, that I would talk about the young men. It's not actually that eye-opening or provocative. The young men are either put into like positions of guards, they become guards, uh, i.e. militant enforcers, or they are there merely to serve as like manual labor. So again, it's not, that's not the most provocative um, reveal of all time, but that's why the young men were being captured. The young earthling men were also being captured. Okay, so that's one of those important things. But we also find out that this is not going to be sociologically sustainable because they've already dealt with Run Rebellion. The film is obviously going to reach a, a, a fever pitch where they have to deal with the second rebellion. And so I want to get back into the history real quick and read another quote from De Las Casas. He says, this is a well-known and proven fact which even the tyrant governors themselves killers now and admit and even have the Indians and all the Indies committed any act against the Spanish Christians until those Christians have first and many times committed countless cruel aggressions against them or against neighboring nations. For in the beginning, the Indians regarded the Spaniards as angels from heaven. Only after the Spaniards had used violence against them, killing, robbing, torturing, did the Indians ever rise up against them. And for me, this was quite um, an important quote from actual history that we could tie back into this film, where in this case, in, in the film, the colony, they literally came from the heavens. In, in, in actual history, they came on, on giant boats. But in this one, they actually come from the heavens. And it is possible we never find out but it is possible that the first ulysses mission was met with with peace rather than aggression so by the time that the second mission shows up the one that blake's on that's perhaps why they were so aggressive to her is because between the first and second mission all they had seen from the colonizer was violence thoughts i mean it's possible i don't remember if it's ever revealed in the film 
the time span between like the destroying of the earth and the returning to the earth. I don't know. Another, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it's never clear if like there's still first generation people alive that experienced the destruction of the earth that would have known what, you know, the old civilization was like. I don't know. Like that would have recognized a spaceship as an example. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't think so, but. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely possible. Okay. So there's another quote from Bartolome de las Casas in his, his description, devastation of the Indies. Um, he basically said during this time period, again, this is during Spanish colonization. This is Columbus and post Columbus colonization of the Caribbean. He says, and I quote, and the Christians with their horses and swords and pikes began to carry out massacres and strange cruelties against them, them being the, the Taino Arawak, the indigenous people. They attacked the towns and spared neither the children nor the aged nor pregnant women nor women in childbed, not only stabbing them and dismembering them, but cutting them to pieces as if dealing with sheep in the slaughterhouse. They laid bets as to who, with one stroke of the sword, could split a man in two or could cut off his head or spill out his entrails with a single stroke of the pike. They took infants from their mother's breast, snatching them by the legs and pitching them headfirst against the crags or snatched them by the arms and threw them into the rivers, roaring with laughter and saying as the babies fell into the water, boil there, you offspring of the devil. Other infants may be put to the sword along with their mothers and anyone else who happened to be nearby. Now, I chose this quote because this isn't exactly what happens in the film The Colony, but there is still commentary here on, again, the colonial project always being tied to some sort of control over reproductive rights. In the case of the Spanish, this was an attempt at ethnic cleansing, ethnically cleansing indigenous people. There's also a whole host of number of other examples I'll, I'll probably talk about here in a second. But in the colony's case, it's control then going to use them for breeding more little Keplers. Any thoughts on this? No, I'm assuming you're going to talk about what I would mention in a second. Okay, well, staying with this theme, let's get back into the film and, and, and away from the historical account of De Las Casas. Narvik um, ends up, again, she is our indigenous heroine in this case, sneaks in, kind of hurts Blake because Blake at this point is not fully turned, turned, uh, changed sides, I guess, for lack of a better term. She kind of hurts Blake, but ends up getting caught. We then learn her official backstory that Nick kind of already mentioned. Uh, Narvik was actually, the reason she knows English, was a former guard in the colony. More importantly, again, this is when it's officially revealed why the girls are being taken by the colonists. They're going to be uh, meant to breed when the rest of the uh, other couplers uh, arrive. And sticking with this theme over control over sexual and reproductive rights, again, it is legion in all colonial Enterprises. We just talked about it with De Las Casas' account of the Colombian, um, the Colombian rapes and things along those lines. Essentially, what we see here in history was a they didn't want any more pure indigenous people being born, so that's why they were like cutting um, um, basically fetuses out of pregnant indigenous people um, or killing the infants um, by throwing them in rivers or beating them over rocks. But they also began um, the process, uh, for lack of a better term, of, of raping many indigenous women to basically change that bloodline, to change that genetic code and get the, the Spanish or the European um, um, bloodline into the indigenous world. Um, we also see this as far forward as like boarding schools in the United States, in which, um, of course, Native American uh, children are stolen um, uh, from their, their reservations and put into boarding schools, uh, the most famous being the Carlisle Boarding School. And these young girls there having their reproductive rights taken away from them in an ethnic cleansing campaign. They were given forced hysterectomies. Um, 
basically this was forced sterilization of indigenous women, um, which is interesting. It, it also well, yeah, we have a whole episode on that. Yeah, we definitely have a whole episode on forced sterilization of women in, in, in U.S. history. There's also a, like another facet of this that I think is overlooked in historical annals, um, perhaps not in this um, in this film, because we're about to get to do an example where it's not overlooked. But the hypersexualization of indigenous or oppressed, especially if we want to think about African-American women that were enslaved, the hypersexualization of those women in history by colonizers. Um, why do you think there was always, whether we're talking about it in literature, I mean, it's mostly liter- literature since we're talking about the 16, 17 and 1800s. There's not like a lot, there's not film or photographs at that time, but it was a little bit in the artwork, right? Paintings and so on and so forth or poetry. Um, as well as literature, why do you think the colonizer over oh, always over hypersexualizes um, the oppressed women? Again, in this case, Native American women, um, African American women. Why do you think that was always the case? I mean, I think it's linked to the dehumanization overall, right? So it a results in sort of not sort of a complete like objectification, but then also ties into this narrative of like animality, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it doesn't take long for the film itself to then act this out in its, again, potential critique of colonization. Paling, who we've already mentioned, um, he decides to attempt to rape um, Blake. Uh, Blake, as the she's captured at this point after the whole uh, failed escape attempt by or escaped rescue attempt by Narvik. Blake ends up being um, more or less kind of captured and Paling uh, predictably attempts to rape her. The good news is she is able to fight back and she is able to kill him by essentially stuffing her cyanide tablet that's still around her neck into his mouth. Um, and we find out a little bit of Paling's backstory, not super provocative. It turns out he was actually one of the indigenous humans or earthlings that ends up turning into a sellout um, and working for the colony. We don't know that if that was an active choice he made or perhaps since he's kind of a, a young adult, maybe he was socialized into it, maybe indoctrinated, maybe he didn't know better. It doesn't matter. He's dead, um, which is fine because he was getting rapey. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a fitting end for him. After our hero, Blake, has her epiphany, and she really only has this epiphany after this series of incidents, right? Everything from, like, seeing her dad um, uh, locked up to seeing, like, perhaps now she's starting to have realizations about, like, Gibson and what he's actually doing, the the very cringy dinner she had with the family, and now Narvik sneaking in, and now finding that Narvik is captured and she's just going to be executed. She basically just has this epiphany, and at this point, like, she... She basically just changes sides. She begins the rebellion anew. She ends up freeing Narvik um, and all of Narvik's friends, all the other indigenous earthlings. Um, And again, this kind of reminds me of the Hatui uh, rebellion um, uh, in the Caribbean when essentially like his first part of the rebellion was revealed, was, was freeing all of the Taino that had basically been captured by the Spanish colonizers. Um, And this is where we get to see a twist in the story. Um, We actually find out during this whole process of a rebellion, which it's not like a strong rebellion. They're not going to like recapture like this colony. They're basically just trying to get it, get free and go home, like free themselves. But we do get an interesting twist where we find out that Gibson's again, adopted son is actually a Kepler. So it turns out perhaps the Keplers are not infertile at all. We actually got a preview of this as, as Nick already mentioned. Um, uh, we find out that Blake's fertility slowly comes back with her time on Earth. We get this in the shower scene. I'm not going to get super graphic as to how it's revealed, but it's revealed in a very obvious way that she she gets um, she gets fertile again. 
Um, so this isn't like the biggest mind blow, um, but it is interesting. So we naturally assume, well, if he's a Kepler, how is he a Kepler? Well, it turns out that it's actually Blake's, uh, he ends up being Blake's brother, um, essentially. Her dad um, ends up hooking hooking up with Gibson's fake wife. And it turns out that um, after the- Well, this is in the past, right? It was before yeah. she was Gibson's fake wife. Well, yeah. Now, I guess that's the point I'm making is, um, yeah. I guess I'll say it more clearly. Um, Blake's father fell in love with a, a, an earth woman and they had a son. Um, after the rebellion and Blake Blake's father being thrown into jail, for lack of a better term, Gibson then takes on um, Blake's- um, wife and son as his own, um, more or less as, as like, I'm not even sure what you would call that. I'm not even sure why, what would you call that? Why do you think Gibson took on Blake's wife and son? Like, I guess, what do you think the point I of that? I don't know. It's gotta be some weird, like psycho psychological thing there that they're trying to get at, but also to con control and power. Right. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. Um, anyway, as we kind of fast forward through this ending here, and the end just just kind of comes upon you. It just it does come relatively quick. If I'm critiquing the film a little bit, the rebellion more or less works for the escapees. I think maybe a couple might be shot as they're running out, but most of the escapees are able to leave um, the camp safely. They're able to escape safely. Um, but Blake has to decide decide she has to track down Gibson before he transmits um, all of the shit that was on the biometer, this communication device. And essentially, this is what's going to um, let the other Keplers know, hey, it's okay to come down from space and uh, recolonize the Earth. Um, this is where, in my own words, the most annoying fight um, ever, maybe in all of film, takes place. <laughs> in which she decides not, I mean, there's probably been way more annoying fights, but like, like, here's the thing. She has her, she is during the rebellion. She's picked up her super advanced assault rifle. This guy, I think has like a pistol and he's basically threatening to like shoot her brother. This is where it's technically revealed that, that the, the, the kid is, is her brother. But like, I mean, seriously, there's a couple of points where like he, like, I, I, I see it all the time in films. Long story short, like, like he has a gun to the head, but like, I firmly believe, and maybe I've played too many first-person shooter video games, that if she's pointing at him, like if she just shot him, there's no way he would also get a shot off killing her brother. Like, do, like uh, it's a it's a stupid trope in all movies. I mean, what do you think of that? Like, doesn't that piss you off? I mean, yeah, it totally pisses me off. I don't know about like the physiological the accuracy of how that goes down. I'm sure we could Google it real fast because I guarantee the internet has said something about this. But yeah, it's annoying. Okay, and well, you're right. The scene was annoying. Bottom line is fine. If she doesn't want to risk her, her, her newfound brother's life, fine. There is a moment where he turns with his pistol and shoots the wife in the head. And at that point, the gun's not even like that's act has already taken place. She could have taken the shot. Well, let's set the scene up, I guess, better so that if the people yeah, that watch the film that are listening and watching, they get the, why this is so impactful. So they're standing on this weather station out in the middle of the ocean because it has transmittability. It's been transmitting to Kepler this whole time. And so he's going to hook in the biometer to transmit all the data back to Kepler, but at which point they will all understand that, you know, Ulysses is still alive, it's alive and well, and that fertility is happening on Earth. And so every single person on Kepler will then come to Earth. And so essentially all of the colonizers will then show up. So basically it's going to mean if not the end of all of the muds, they call them, right? The indigenous term that Jared is using, which is fine. The indigenous people, at least there's going to be massive warfare and disagreement and conflict. So basically she's 
Blake has the choice of potentially killing her brother, but saving all of the muds or not killing her mother, her brother. And, you know, the end consequence is potentially the end of life on earth as they know it, which I think that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the annoying part for me was like, sorry, but your brother's got to go. You know what I mean? But obviously then that's not how the film goes. Right. I mean, and that's the sacrifice, I guess, that they're trying to trying to allude to here. Like, I mean, we know in the actual historical colonial process, anywhere white people showed up, um, horrific things happened. Like life mm-hmm. ended as people knew it. Sometimes it ended up in full scale ethnic cleansing, as we see in like Australia with the Aboriginal people or in North America with most of the First Nations. Sometimes it just ended up in perhaps cultural assimilation, like we see in Southeast Asia, like India and so on and so forth. But yeah, it Well, so I had an interesting take on I don't it's not an interesting take. It was just something that I thought of in the moment of the film was that I wonder if this is supposed to be a sort of final stand against the ideology of Kepler. Blake's action in this scene, right? Because her dad, if you remember back to the, one of the very first scenes when she says, you know, dad, don't leave me. And he says, you know, we do not let our emotions guide us. We do it for the many. She basically rebels against that ideology. And in this moment does let her emotions guide her. And she saves the brother, uh, her, the life of her brother. But so she essentially does rebel against the ideology of Kepler Unfortunately, it means the complete downfall of all of the indigenous people. So it's like, it's a yeah. paradox, right? Yeah. No, I, I, I could definitely see that. I could, I could definitely see that. Uh, okay. So I, yes, I think Nick set that up a little bit better than I did. Regardless, um, the mother, uh, the, the, the indigenous woman, the mud mother ends up dying. She gets shot in the face. At this point, again, I do think that Blake could have probably um, taken out Gibson, but then I guess that's not enough drama. So long story short, she doesn't shoot him. Um, he's able to send, he's able to get enough time um, and wherewithal to um, set the biometer up and the, it transmits to what uh, transmits to Kepler, whatever information it needed to transmit. Um, and then eventually um, the, fight takes place in which Blake ends up tackling um, Gibson off of the weather um, weather buoy and they fall into the water. She ends up choking him out. He ends up drowning. Narvik comes in as the hero um, uh, by grabbing Blake and, and resuscitating her, uh, giving her CPR. Um, and of course, everything's supposed to end up kind of kosher, at least for these people, like their, their, their little rebellion worked out and Blake has survived. Her brother has survived. Narvik has her daughter, Mila back. Um, uh, Blake's father is still alive. They're going back to their original encampment. Um, and I'm assuming everybody's going to be, um, friends and they're going to carry on. Unfortunately, of course, there's the elephant in the room is that the transmission was sent off. Um, and so other Keplers are going to come. Um, and I do think the film made this sound kind of hopeful because Blake and her father have this conversation about how things are going to be when these other Keplers show up, these other colonizers show up. Are they going to bring, she basically says, like, hopefully they bring trees instead of ethnic, well, she doesn't say this, hopefully they bring trees um, instead of ethnic cleansing. And that's kind of like what I said about this film. Um, I was I hoping think that it's open for interpretation, though, because I didn't think that it was opened it at all i interpreted it as like there was no hope whatsoever that like it was game over for them that the keplers were going to show up with their superior technology and like it probably was the end of the earth as far as they were concerned you know 
Fair enough. And with that, I want to kind of close out this commentary, this analysis here with one last quote from an actual historical example of the colonial process. Again, this comes to us um, from the uh, uh, priest Bartolome de las Casas um, in his various numerous appeals that he sent back to the king and queen of Spain, basically saying, hey, you, you got to stop this. And I think this is kind of a footing quote um, to end based on, on, on Nick's analysis here. Okay, and I quote: After the wars and killing had ended, there usually only survived there usually survived only some boys, some women, and children. These survivors were distributed among the Christians to be slaves. The repartimiento or distribution was made according to the rank and importance of the Christian to whom the Indians were allocated. One of them being given thirty, another forty, still another one or two hundred, and besides the rank of Christian, there was to be considered in what favor he stood with the tyrant they called governor. The pretext was that these allocated Indians were to be instructed in the articles of the Christian faith, as if those Christians who were as rule, foolish, and cruel, and greedy and vicious could be caretakers of souls. And the care they took was to send the men to the mines to dig for gold, which is intolerable labor, and to send the women into the fields of the big ranches to hoe and till the land, work suitable for strong men. Nor to either the men or the women did they give any food except herbs and legumes, things of little substance. The milk and the breast of the women with infants dried up, and thus in a short while while the infants perished. And since men and women were separated, there could be no marital relations. And the men died in mines... And the women died on the ranches from the same causes, exhaustion and hunger, and thus was depopulated the island which had been so densely populated. All right. That's all we have on the colony. At least that's all, excuse me, I should say I have on the colony. I'm going to ask Nick for one kind of like maybe wrap up um, um, comment here as the sociologist. Any thoughts? It's kind of interesting because this isn't a very popular film, so there's not a lot out there on it. Like I said, I couldn't even, like the Wikipedia is really, really almost nothing. And even the IMDb just has like the plot line, but it doesn't have any, a lot of information. Um, But I did listen to an interview by the director and he said that his goal for the film was just to make people, you know, question our current behavior as it relates to the climate and our conflict and like so forth. So I mean, I don't know if he has succeeded at that. I certainly, you know, it's definitely blatant that that is uh, the theme of the film, I think, along with the colonization narrative that Jared and I have broken down. Uh, So I think as far as that goes, he's definitely accomplished his goal. And like we said, it's a technically a really good film, Um, though I will say if you haven't seen Children of Men, watch that instead because it's much, much, much better, Um, though, I mean, different. It's not about colonization. It's just a much better post-apocalyptic sort of dealing with infertility type film, but uh, there's a lot of commonalities, but children of men is incredible. Um, but the colony's good. Uh, you know, I recommend watching it. It's entertaining and production quality is really high. And there's a lot of interesting, I mean, definitely relevant uh, commentary there to be had for sure. Anything else? No, that was a lot more long winded than I wanted it to be, but who cares? I mean, yeah, let's get it. Cool. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening. Leave us a rating wherever you're listening to this. That will help us to find more listeners. And please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology.